0: into action today we're speaking with Gary Willoughby Gary serves as the president and CEO of the SPCA serving Erie County leading a team of nearly 120 employees and 1800 volunteers Gary joined the SPCA in 2016 after leading animal welfare organizations previously in Toledo Ohio and Aiken South Carolina and volunteering and serving as a board member for animal welfare organizations in Florida He had the privilege to play a role in capital campaigns leading to either new facilities, renovation of existing facilities, or facility expansions in New York State, Ohio, South Carolina, and Florida, and construction projects in Florida in the mass transit and senior services field. Gary was born in Ypsilanti, Michigan, but lived in Florida for most of his life. His undergrad degree was in journalism and communications from the University of Mobile in Alabama. He earned a certificate in nonprofit management from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, another in nonprofit management from the Harvard Business School of Buffalo, as well as a graduate certificate in gerontology and a master's in public administration from Florida Gulf Coast University. He's a member of the Society of Animal Welfare Administrators and is a board member for the New York Animal Protection Federation. He's a former member of the Meals on Wheels Association, a former board member of the Florida Council on Aging, the FGCU Center for Positive Aging Advisory Council, an active member of the Florida Aging Service Providers and the Florida Commission for the Transportation Disadvantaged. A little information about the SPCA serving Erie County. The SPCA is a nonprofit tax-exempt private institution serving Erie County since 1867, the nation's second oldest humane society. The SPCA is dedicated... To the welfare of all animals and the people who love them Originally founded to protect the many draft animals used to draw the boats on the Erie Canal The SPCA has grown over its 150 plus years to become the leader in humane issues in western New York Last year the SPCA moved its headquarters to West Seneca In a new 52,000 square foot facility, barn and wildlife enclosure campus Situated on 10 acres at 300 Harlem Road The new facility not only offers better facilities for dogs, cats, pocket pets, farm animals, and wildlife, but saw the return of a low-cost clinic aimed at pet wellness and pet retention for pet owners throughout Erie County. Wow, what an incredible accomplishment. Gary, I'd like to welcome you to the show.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: Fantastic work that you've done over the years. I'm just mind blown by all of this information. But let's take a step back, Gary, maybe share with our listeners, how did you develop a passion for animal welfare?
1: In a variety of ways, uh, raised around dogs and cats, come from a long line of about eight generations of farmers, uh, spent almost all my summers in Michigan on my grandfather's farm around horses and pigs and chickens and goats and rabbits and everything else, and uh, and we always had barn cats. Later on, my, my mom took us, my brother and I, to a, a local humane society when we moved to Florida and adopted our first cats uh, when we were young children. Uh, even at college later on, uh, when I was staying in dormitories, I would have cats that would kind of show up and you start feeding them. And that's when I first started really thinking about how they got there, who's feeding them if I'm not there, who's taking care of their medical needs. And, and then once I graduated college, I adopted my first dog out of a newspaper ad and then learned about that, that uh, a group called Friends of Strays in St. Petersburg, Florida, and started volunteering with them and kind of got hooked in ever since then
0: my my daughter went to eckerd college Absolutely. and uh she fostered kitties while she was at eckerd so it's a small world there and and really enjoyed it thought it was great and trying to help out the cats down in florida after her experiences of fostering many kitties up here in in massachusetts so small world there uh Absolutely. lots of cats down in florida to worry about that's for sure yeah So, you have quite a few different degrees in nonprofit management. What made you interested in getting several certificates from different organizations?
1: Part of it is just a general interest. I love education. I love to learn. Um, There's a lot of things. I'm always, you know, watching a webinar, going to a, a presentation, reading books. I just, there's knowledge out there. I want a piece of it. I want to learn more. I started off working at a retirement community out of college and got to meet a lot of very wonderful people that were experts in a lot of different things. And it kind of just triggered in me, uh, you know, if they know it, I want to know it as well, whatever it may be, just to be more well-rounded person, I guess.
0: The learning always continues. Unfortunately, and fortunately, we should always be striving to learn and be willing to learn new things and be willing to try new things. And one of the things that I've run into as a, a challenge is often organizations are afraid of change. And sometimes they'll say, oh, my board doesn't want to change this program this way or this program that way. How do you impact change based on the things that you have learned from other sources?
1: Well, and, and another thing we hear often is we've always done it this way, and uh, that's another thing that I'm, I'm also a big history buff, a fan of the g- going backwards and learning about things. And so our organization, I've become kind of our historian here, like I said, second oldest in North America after the ASPCA. Uh, we started 11 months after them. And so, like you said, with the draft horses in the Erie Canal, we don't do that anymore. So we've always evolved. We've always looked at the next chapter. So I, I use a lot of looking at the data, what it shows us. So, again, your your gut might tell you one thing, but the data is, is another piece of the puzzle. You really need to know what are your trends, um, what are other peer organizations doing in other communities. I love with the Internet, that's one of the best things is you can see what's going on around the world and how other people are addressing problems that are happening
0: in your own backyard. So, you know, we're talking about community cats and neck chapters. And one of the things that you actually reached out to me about, which you had seen, our episode with regard to uh, birds and wildlife with Bob Sellinger and Karen Krauss, episode number 262. For folks that might not have tech in on that And you're filling me in on the experiences that you have had Around TNVR and wildlife issues And I just thought you might want to share some of those experiences With our listeners and what your thought process is around that issue
1: Sure. And and we're one of the uh, rare SPCA's or humane societies in the United States that also has a full service wildlife department. It's a difficult and a totally different type of business uh, from the dog and cat business and farm animals and everything else we do. And a lot of the animals that come into wildlife uh, for a variety of reasons, but oftentimes it's because of interactions they've had with cats. So a lot of times we may address one issue in animal welfare here and it may be a winner for that species, but it could be a loser for another species. And so there's that internal conflict because even the folks in our wildlife department also most of them have cats as well and love animals of all types, but they see also injured birds and other small animals that were injured by cats uh, that are outside. So the idea of having less cats outside with with good strategies is beneficial to our wildlife department as well, too. So they love the uh, long-term impacts of TNVR. Less cats outside is better for the cats, and it's also better for the wild animals that are supposed to be outside.
0: Over the years, as you've implemented TNVR... Have you actually seen a decline in numbers in your wildlife facility or how have you measured the successful impacts of that?
1: Well, the main thing is we're definitely seeing many less cats coming into our facility, so there's less encounters out there. We actually, as we raise awareness of our wildlife department, our wildlife numbers actually continue to go up, but very many less cat interactions now. We have more just birds falling out of nests, abandoned animals, and uh, birds flying into buildings and things like, you know, the other things that could happen, but uh, less cat interactions than we had years ago. But this year we'll have 2,700 less cats come in than we did just 10 years ago.
0: Is that 2,700 less from a total of?
1: From a total of almost about 6,800 10 years ago coming in now. And so much of that the same 10 years ago was when our local high volume spay neuter clinic was created here in western New York. And so they've been out on the streets and and really helping us. It's been a partnership between a number of organizations addressing it, trying to be more proactive than just us dealing with how many uh, unplanned litters of kittens would come in each, each year.
0: So that was really the pivot or the tipping point, whatever marketing phrase we want to use, Sure. that changed the environment or changed the landscape for community cats was really the launching of a spay-neuter initiative in the community for owned cats as well as TNR, or was it just for TNR?
1: It's both, and then there's a second collaborative effort with a group called Feral Cat Focus that concentrated on the community cats themselves and had the volunteers distributed in the neighborhoods, worked with municipalities on uh, on T- TNVR-friendly legislation. We were spaying and neutering all the cats coming into us, but there were many that were already getting pregnant before they ever came into us, and we had more cats coming in than the community would adopt. We knew we needed less cats. We needed to talk to people in many communities that maybe were feeding 20 or 30 or more cats in their neighborhood addressing sterilization, and so uh, they loved feeding, but they didn't take that next initiative to get them fixed, or cost to get them fixed was a barrier for them as well.
0: You're talking about creating certain legislation that was supportive of PNVR. Is it a simple sort of statement of support, or is it actually more specific than that? I always worry about legislation being potentially too heavy-handed on us or tying our hands in situations where we want a little bit more flexibility. So I'm curious to see how you might have worked out that situation so that it's a positive effect and it, it doesn't have a potential to backfire down the road
1: correct. And, and the bulk of this work had been done before I got here uh, two and a half years ago, but it's more supportive, more educational to the legislators of what the long-term strategy was of addressing uh, the concern, obviously making sure all these cats are uh, up to date on their rabies, so you don't have the health department uh, worried about that. In many cases, as possible ways for the cats to escape very cold buffalo winters, so making sure there's options for them to uh, to stay warm in the wintertime. Having a strategy of the, that just, again, simply feeding outside animals uh, is one thing, but making sure that the colony caregivers uh, are in place and they're giving that information back to groups that are tracking things and that there's a plan in case a cat comes up injured, as well as if one sneaks through and it has some kittens, you know, that we, we immediately work with our foster department to socialize those kittens so those can become future inside cats and adoption candidates. So just kind of looking at it from all understanding what this is, what it isn't, really educating people because, again, that's not your local elected officials. That's not their specialty. They're often contacted more about if a neighbor dispute if uh, a cat's, you know, using a flower bed as a litter box or they're worried about cats that are uh, outside in, in inclement weather, things like that.
0: And I'm sure you had the, the conversation with the neighbor at city council who is complaining about the cats or somebody who's very passionate about birds and really wanting to have a mandate put down that you know every cat must be indoors. As a leader of a very established organization, how do you handle those kinds of situations as well as working with public officials who have to respond to these folks?
1: And again, it's another thing where there's just so many people. This this issue pops up all around the country, and there's a lot of research online that you can share examples. And just like our wildlife department, the goal is to have less cats outside. So spaying and neutering them is an effective way to create less of them in the future. Uh, you know, Many people talk about the vacuum effect. If you just simply pick them all up off the street, that new ones are going to come in. If there are still people with loose trash cans, if people are feeding other animals outside, sometimes even if they have dog food, there's no one solution by itself is going to solve everything. So the comprehensive approach and just talking to people, but we can't guarantee that that one cat is not going to come into your yard and get into your flower bed. There are more and more online humane alternatives, and there are different things that people can do to try to discourage cats from coming into your yard as well. So trying to offer them humane alternatives, they don't want that cat in their yard.
2: We're proud to be an affiliate of Space Kitty Express, makers of handmade, refillable catnip alternative cat toys. Think Valerian, Silver Vine, Honeysuckle, etc. for the discerning cat who wants to try something new or doesn't respond to catnip. You can even get 10% off your purchase at Space Kitty Express by using the code Cats at checkout. Help your kitty blast off today with some new toys from www.spacekittyexpress.com. Meow. Ah! Did you miss the 2018 online cat conference that we held in January? Or would you like to share some of the conference webinars with friends? You can now purchase the presentations and share them with colleagues and friends. Just visit our recordings page, which is under the resources tab, to access webinars from some of the leading personalities in feline welfare today. They're sure to give you and your cat-loving friends great ideas on ways to help even more cats. Check it out at www.communitycatspodcast.com.
0: I'd like to just take a a quick minute here to talk a bit about the partnership that you have with Operation Pets and Feral Cat Focus. So Operation Pets is the high-volume spay-neuter clinic that was started to help increase the spay-neuter opportunities. My question of the moment is always, you know, how do you fund all these community cat surgeries or the surgeries for the folks that can't afford even $100 to spay or neuter their cats?
1: Uh, they're another nonprofit agency. They're about three miles from our facility. And I know uh, since they opened 10 years ago, they've done a little over 60,000 cat, spay, and neuter surgeries uh, in our area. So they've really made a big impact in a small one-table clinic. They, like a lot of other organizations that are similar, they, they, they do the high-volume, high-quality spay-neuter clinic. They were trained down in Nashville, North Carolina, at the organization that the ASBC is now uh, operating. And they, they rely a lot on grants. They, they target mostly the lower-income folks that are less likely to go to their own doctor to have their cat spayed or neutered. Uh, They do fundraising events to help with the copay if folks can't afford, you know, even their low-cost prices. So uh, like all of us in nonprofit, they try to get the folks that can kind of pay it forward that are uh, animal lovers and understand this is a uh, serious thing. So they're looking for either grants or for individuals to help subsidize those costs.
0: Which is hard work. Which is very hard work and I know that many clinics believe it's very hard to fundraise for a clinic versus the adoption program where you have Fluffy the Puppy or the little kitten that's cute that you put in your appeal letter. There are some people who feel that that's an easier fundraising sell so to speak than the spay neuter concept. Sounds like you've had to run a tremendous capital campaign. As a fundraiser, what advice would you give folks?
1: And, and I also ran a clinic-like Operation Pets in my SPCA in South Carolina and went through the same training. And uh, what I did there and what generally is I had a lower quantity of people that were uh, willing to donate that, but I had some people that would take a little more time and really educate them on why this was so important. And I had a number of people that I could call that would send in several thousand dollars at a time specifically for that purpose because they knew how important it was that you can't adopt your way out of an overpopulation problem and you can't transfer your way even out of it. You've got to make sure that there. Is affordable and, and easy access to spay and neuter. You can't have your uh, waiting list be too long. Some areas transportation can be a problem. You have to overcome all those uh, barriers, those obstacles because again, it's so easy to love animals and just to put out some food and water for a cat. Taking the next step, there's always barriers in the way and financial time commitments all those things. So you try to find different people who will really understand the logic behind why that's such a concentrated effort. It's not as warm and fuzzy, like you said, as getting a puppy ready for adoption, but it's so important.
0: So you're actually saying in terms of focus our time, energy and effort is really getting to know who's using the clinic as well as getting to know folks that would be supportive of that cause. And so spending more time on five or 10 donors that have a good giving potential versus trying to get 100 or 200 people to give $25 is a better use of your time.
1: And it may be different by different community. You may find in that individual, it may be an individual, it may be a foundation or a grant source, somebody that's going to take the time to really look at the data. I mean, you can still have your 5Ks and your golf tournaments and your other feel-good things. A lot of people that, you know, it's a lot of work and it may only raise a smaller amount of money for some of your general operating costs, but uh, getting to understand your data and your community partners. We are reaping the benefits because of the work that other groups are working towards. But again, none of us independently can do this by ourselves. Not only even though we built a new facility, we also have about two dozen in off-site locations to adopt cats at your PetSmart, your PetCo's, your Pet Supplies Pluses and places like that because we also know another barrier. People don't travel as far to adopt cats. From the prevention to the education to the adoption and we try to look at it from every angle and see what can we divide up and conquer together uh, and all of us have our kind of our own specialties so communication, sharing data even finding really good quality people to go in the streets to talk to people who feed cats. That's another, another skill set. We have humane cruelty officers here. We're often uh, going out to hoarding situations. Even indoor feral cats are becoming a bigger issue in our area. So having really uh, good people that are non-judgmental to talk to folk who love the cats, uh, even overcoming barriers of why do I want to get these cats spayed or neutered is an important area in the community.
0: Right. How do you stay in touch with the other groups? Do you meet a couple times a year to share notes or is it done sort of more randomly?
1: The the group before I got here had gone through a big Maddie's Fund collaboration and a big effort in sharing a lot of the data, and we still work with a lot of those same groups pretty regularly. We have also just completed our strategic planning process for the next three to five years and talked quite a bit about that organization, and Operation Pets is now undertaking theirs. And so we talk very regularly about trends, what's working, what's not working, cause and effect. The director of the feral cat focus group also sits on that state uh, Animal Protection Federation board with me as well. So we find a lot of ways to get together regularly to see what's working and maybe what we need to shift our focus on.
0: What do you see for community cats five or ten years down the road in your area? It seems like
1: we're in a good crossroads here. Uh, The impact is coming to fruition. We have wonderful people in the community that understand how this works. We can train new people that want to volunteer if if cats pop up in their area. We are building our foster base every year, so when we uncover a lot of newborn kittens, we're able to get them out in foster care, and so they don't have to live their lives on the street. There are more and more positive things happening in our community. The next phase is really going out in some of the rural counties around us. Uh, I travel quite a bit and stop at places, and all of a sudden, I'll see baby kittens in a barn, at a store, and the resources aren't as readily available just a half an hour to an hour away from us. So I've had some initial talks with Operation Pets about trying to duplicate the model I had in South Carolina with that transportation component that we don't have here of someday having a vehicle that can go out in these communities and pick up the animals and bring them back the same day with their surgeries to overcome another obstacle that's affecting our rural counties that are still seeing, they're not seeing the downward tread in cats yet. So
0: maybe share with us a little bit about your experiences in South Carolina and maybe some of the differences of the challenges that you've seen from the two different regions.
1: Sure. In, in the South, uh, in general, you have a higher population problem. And a lot of that's not necessarily even the people, as I've learned over the years. It's it's really the weather is a big part of it. Animals can thrive all year round outside easier in Florida and South Carolina and places in the warmer areas. There are some cultural differences. And you know, in South Carolina, people let their dogs wander quite often. Uh, you'll see dogs running on the side of the road much more often than anywhere else I've ever lived animal control set up differently um, there's more financial incentives uh, in South Carolina where in New York and Ohio and other places the statutes concentrate on dogs and not so much on cats so your local animal control officers don't have to pick up cats where in South Carolina they do and the taxpayers have to pay for housing all those animals so it was easy for me down there to go back to the cities and the counties and say let's have a low cost spay neuter voucher program where down the line you invest a little bit of money in spay neuter vouchers and you're going to have less kittens and cats that you're going to have to hold for stray hold and spend a lot of money on so we're able to even in those areas, see a downward trend, Uh, cats coming in, uh, unplanned litters, and that's been a big help out there. And then the transportation component is working with the rural groups around us. They coordinate, they find the folks, and find one place where they all come together, and maybe we're meeting in a parking lot somewhere and picking up all the animals and taking them back to our clinic to have them altered, and then brought back with post-surgical instructions afterwards.
0: And that's something that you'd hope to try and do in New York, Are you starting as an organization to even expand, maybe take New York City out of the picture, but almost look at that whole northern part of the state? Well, part
1: of it's looking at um, the transportation usually is effective to about a 60-mile about radius is what they normally train. So it's it's identifying first, like if you go to the Humane Alliance website, you can look at where the high-volume spay-neuter clinics are in the United States, and you can find there are gaps in our country where there aren't those types of resources available for somebody within an hour of them. Um, there's a shelter in, Ohio, in rural Ohio we're working with uh, between here and Cleveland as an example that we transfer a lot of animals from. There is no spay-neuter clinic like that available within them for like an hour and a half in any direction, they'll have way too many cats and kittens there. So it's first identifying your resources, what's already in place, and then the next barrier, again, like I said, oftentimes is transportation. So we've been talking to the smaller shelters around us that hear from their citizens as well, and so they can help gather and coordinate on their their local level, and then if we're able to provide transportation and overcome that barrier and do 15, 20, 30 surgeries in a day, that can help reduce their future intake in those communities.
0: I think it's a phenomenal idea because also the situation with the Humane Alliance Clinics, as well as with the shelters, is as our population numbers go down, here we have these facilities and the staffing to handle a certain amount of static numbers, I would say. So you need to resupply yourself in order to be able to hit your revenue numbers. And I know in New England there are a lot of organizations that are really worried about a downshift in numbers either in the spay-neuter component from the clinic side or also from the adoption side. When it sounds like you're at least looking for some short term alternatives. But I do know that there are some concerns about even 10 years down the road or whatever, where you're going to be reaching farther than 60 miles. Is that a place that you hope for us to get to?
1: Well, and that's certainly true in the spay-neuter, and it's already there with the uh, adoption side for sure. We, were, we take in dogs uh, in particular for adoption from uh, 13 or 14 different states right now, occasionally from Ontario and Canada. Last year after the hurricanes from Puerto Rico, we definitely see that as a trend. And even in the wintertime now, we're transferring in cats and kittens from other parts of the country. You know, there's times where we have all this infrastructure, 25 off-site adoption locations and a large facility, and you know, we might have 10 or 15 cats for adoption. So logistics of getting, getting the animals, that's expensive also to train, obviously, and cats don't travel as well generally as dogs. So that's another challenge for organizations, making sure you have enough cats available for the people who want to adopt them. Bay Neuter, again, I think we have a ways out because of the rural areas, but it's like anything else. It's the transportation network. But I do see, uh, and I guess as a nonprofit, you want to put yourself out of business, at least that type of work over time as we've evolved. Again, we're not doing the, the draft horses aren't a problem for us anymore we've continued to evolve over the years what what were the problems and we want to be on the forefront there are many other animal related issues we're still dealing with in our community the spay neuter and the in uh, the adoption end is changing but there are plenty of other local issues that every community still can address there's still a really important need for local spcas and humane societies
0: gary if, if folks are interested in finding out more about your organization how can they find you
1: The easiest way is probably just going to our website is yourspca.org. So it's Y-O-U-R-S-P-C-A.org. You can follow us also on Twitter or Facebook.
0: This has been an incredible education. I've learned so much. I've taken tons of notes. I can definitely see where you've done a lot of education. I, I hear the nonprofit management coming through you because I can tell you're thinking strategically. You're sort of trying to always take a step back and look at things and not be afraid of change and trying to anticipate what's coming ahead. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today?
1: I just really want to emphasize the, the importance of no one person or one group can do it alone. You have to not be afraid to talk to other groups, to share your data, to share what's working and what nots working. Uh, you don't want to be afraid of competition if you see it that way. But again, one group can't be out in the street every day, every day, doing all the surgeries, doing all the adoptions, doing all the fundraising, educating the community leaders, things like that. So really get to understand who loves cats in your community and who also loves wildlife in your community. And who who wants to uh, see a better community, and and also the folks that have the resources out there that maybe aren't going to get their hands dirty in the community, but they can write the checks to make all that work possible. So really a gathering of all interested parties, seeing what's working, what's not working, and coming up with a strategic plan together to improve your community.
0: Gary, that's phenomenal. And I want to thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on my show,
2: and I hope we'll have you on again in the future.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank you so much.